Okay, hello everybody. Today is Wednesday, and while Wednesdays on this channel are more traditionally reserved for the AMA, the Ask Me Anything, I'm continuing onward with the series about the New Orleans Axeman, who operated in the early part of the 20th century. Now, I would also like to drop the announcement that there will be a regularly scheduled episode on the disappearance of Donna Lass, which will come out tomorrow. That's Thursday to anybody who's listening to these things live as they are released. And if you're listening to this in the future, I have a series on the disappearance of Donna Lass. There's a playlist available here on this channel, Black Box Online Radio. But if you would like to follow along with all of these, then I would invite you to like and subscribe so that you can stay up to date and get all of the new Black Box Online Radio episodes as they come out. And there will be a very special episode on the Anything Goes segment this Friday, talking about Jack the Ripper, because we are now in the season of autumn, and a lot of Ripper activities happened in both the summer and the fall. But I think that you'd say the Ripper murders escalated in the season of autumn, and there will also be a very special episode this weekend that's going to be put out, a podcast specifically designed for falling asleep. Yes, indeed, there's, I'm going to try something new on the channel, a sleep podcast. So, as I said, you can subscribe to follow along, but you can also just look out for some new content on Black Box Online Radio. And I am doing this series about the New Orleans Axeman, and I'm not going to lie to you guys. A series of murders happened between 1918 and 1919 in Louisiana, and after doing several episodes, I'm tempted to lean toward this being either some type of media hoax or one more possibility that is still on the table. By media hoax, it would mean that the newspapers, the writers, maybe fantasy-filled journalists are trying to make the general public think that there is a single serial killer on the loose, but in fact they are there are multiple killers and it's just being united by these pieces of writing. And, and in this case, I don't mean anything like letters from the killer. I mean the actual work of the journalists themselves. When it comes to the New Orleans Axeman, there is one specific letter that gets mentioned, and that's one that says that you need to jazz it out. Any house that has a jazz band playing will not be attacked. So there were lots of people that took that threat seriously, and there were lots of jazz bands playing on that night that um, the Axeman had requested. But, I mean, I personally don't believe that that was actually from the killer, and neither does Miriam C. Davis, who is the author of Axeman of New Orleans, The True Story. I would like to pick up with some comments from her book right here. Only 31 years after Jack the Ripper terrorized London and presented the world with a new kind of killer, 50 years before the term serial killer even existed, the police were ill-equipped to deal with a serial murderer. Jack the Ripper lives forever as the ghostly fiend of Whitechapel, and his five victims are among the most famous unsolved murders in history. But he is hardly the only one who got away with such crimes. Okay, you can already see there that Miriam Davis is definitely not getting my gut instincts or my initial um, suspicions looking into this. She is definitely someone who seems to be a believer that there was an Axeman and that there was a single perpetrator. In this episode, I would like to talk about some comments from her book and also 
an alternative to this media hoax theory because anybody can just say, oh, well, it was a hoax and it was just the newspapers are deceiving people and then you just end of discussion, full stop. We've seen it with the Zodiac Killer. We've seen it with Jack the Ripper. But with the Axeman, there's a different possibility that I definitely don't think is relevant to the Zodiac Killer mystery and I'm pretty sure it's not super relevant to the Jack the Ripper case, and that is the Mafia. One possibility that I have not ruled out, in fact, I haven't ruled out any possibility because it's an unsolved crime, I certainly don't know what happened, and I haven't found conclusive evidence that would persuade me to endorse any particular theory involving the New Orleans Axeman, but I cannot rule out the Mafia murders that even if it's not the same perpetrator in every single crime, there could be a mafia connection, specifically the Sicilian mafia that is operating among both Italian immigrant communities as well as people who are connected to the grocery store chains, that there could be some type of organized crime that is influencing people's decisions or demanding bribes or trying to make people do things against their will, I guess you'd say extortion, and two, possibly even racketeering, depending on the nature of um, their activities. And then if people don't go along with that, they are attacked. In the last episode, I was talking about the DeFore murders from 1879, where Martin and Susan DeFore were attacked with an axe in their home. They were murdered, and the axe was left in the fireplace, covered in ashes and blood. What happened to them? I mean, like, the reason for that crime? We're not even sure. But they had $18 in silver, which was not taken, so it means that robbery didn't seem like a very likely motive, and the money was easily accessible, and it didn't appear that the house was ransacked. To the best of my knowledge... I'm not going to act like I'm some pure expert on the DeFore murders. I'm just someone who has read a little bit here and there online. But that also goes to suggest that these types of crimes happen very frequently. And they happen much more frequently in the late parts of the 19th century and the early parts of the 20th century. And I think it was very important to note that because I know it's not an attractive thing to say, but that supports the idea that this is some type of media hoax where the newspapers are presenting the image of a single serial killer when in fact they could just be unrelated murders that people did this much more frequently in the early part of the 20th century because having an axe in the yard was a much more common characteristic than it is now. I mean, it's not locked up in the tool shed like more people would have today. But I would like to keep going with Miriam Davis's book here. Killers who target strangers have no obvious motives and are always difficult to catch. In the 1970s, Ted Bundy killed over 20 young women before he was finally apprehended, despite over a dozen detectives in three states looking for him. The BTK killer of Wichita was caught after 30 years only because of DNA evidence and his own arrogance. That's something that you do not see with the Axeman. Yeah, there's that one letter that says people need to play jazz bands or there is um, going to be a series of attacks. I'm going to hit every house that isn't playing a jazz band. 
I mean, that means that the general public's perception is that there is a single serial killer. However, Miriam Davis believes that's a hoax. I believe that that's a hoax. That just it seems like someone who is copying Jack the Ripper, and it also seems like something that is way too silly for any serial killer. I will kill you. Oh yeah, but I also like jazz music, so if um you play jazz music, I will not kill you. Do we have a deal? Please say yes. I mean, like, it's almost too ridiculous for its own good. However, though, serial killers are deranged people, but I don't think they're deranged in the um, comical, euphoric, bargaining types. I mean, especially not in that nature. Definitely not in that sort. But there's another line here about the Zodiac Killer, actually. And this is, this is once again, from Miriam Davis's book, Axeman of New Orleans. The Zodiac Killer of Northern California evaded a 40-year manhunt, never to be captured or even identified with certainty. It's interesting that she um, lists those serial killers, though. Ted Bundy, BTK, and then the Zodiac Killer, because BTK is somebody who is a little bit different than Ted Bundy, because Bundy is much more about just these types of sexually motivated kills that are done because of, well, I say emotional trauma. BTK added in these additional components of arrogance that Miriam Davis was just talking about, making up his own codes and such. And the Zodiac Killer, well, we aren't even sure if there was a single Zodiac Killer. I mean, it's possible there was one Zodiac Killer. It's possible that there were two Zodiacs working together. And it's also possible that the Zodiac Killer crimes were a hoax. You can respond if you would like in the comments section. I mean, as you, as I've said a hundred times, I don't endorse any Zodiac Killer theory either. There are some ways that I lean, but I don't... Um, I think that it's rather interesting, though, that she is completely taking off the hoax theory in both the Ripper and the Zodiac, because I'll say more about this on Friday. With Jack the Ripper, I think the idea that the media is behind the hoax theory is a little bit more plausible. With the Zodiac Killer, maybe a little less plausible, but I've talked a lot about that in the past. I'll keep reading from her book. In the early 20th century, the difficulties of catching the serial killer, even identifying serial killers, were even greater. It was the dawn of a new age. Police forces were becoming professionalized, and as they began wriggling free from the taint of corruption and patronage. Wow, what a sentence. While police procedures and investigative techniques were rapidly developing, the science of homicide investigation was still in its infancy. The art of profiling was unknown. Here's the problem with profiling if it's a media hoax. As I said, hoax, meaning that someone is making people think that there's a serial killer when they're actually real murders happening, but they are not connected. Here's the problem with profiling. If that is the case, then, they're going to be profiling a fictional character. I repeat, someone who isn't real, someone who doesn't actually exist. I mean, and yes, I... Got that from somebody else named Horan. He's the one who planted that idea in my mind about psychological profiling. But if that is true, then that's the case. Again, not saying anything about the Zodiac Killer, but about the New Orleans Axeman. 
The art of profiling was unknown. Scientists had only learned how to distinguish human blood from animal blood in the last 20 years. I don't know why I had to hold back from laughing. It, it was really hard not to laugh. Like, I don't know why that was funny. Scientists had only learned how to distinguish human blood from animal blood in the last 20 years. Okay, I get, I'm getting myself together. This humors for some reason. Detectives could now conclusively prove whether a pinkish stain was blood. Fingerprinting had only been recently introduced as a crime-fighting tool. Toxicologists in New York City's coroner's office were just beginning to systemically develop the discipline of forensic chemistry as a weapon for detecting poisons. In Vienna, Sigmund Freud was still unpacking the unconscious modems of the human mind. Well, the problem with Sigmund Freud is that he is not universally accepted. As I've said in some previous episodes, especially in the older black box days, I used to think that Sigmund Freud was an absolute quack, that he was just making up little quips and sayings, and that people didn't understand the human thought process. But then Freud came along and provided explanations as to why we thought the way they did. Like, okay, when you're actually thinking about this, it's because you hate your mother and you hate your father, and actually you hate both your parents. You know, all those things that he has like going on about the... um parental influences and to talk a little bit more seriously i had a big reversal on freud because i actually found out that a lot of his observations were not baseless especially if you do certain mental exercises that are done in the freudian tradition you can see that there are influences on human psychology and i, I was just talking about ted bundy about how I believe that he was someone who came from certain types of emotional trauma. I often use the term shattering the pillars of childhood on this channel. So, let's keep going. In New Orleans, where the killer struck first, some reorganized, or some recognized, that they faced no ordinary criminal. The city was blessed with two police superintendents who realized that they were stalked by a Jack the Ripper of their own, a different kind of murderer, against whom... Traditional methods were, well, if not useless, at least limited. Ah, uh, interesting here that she says, this is where the killer struck first. That murder that happened in 1879, the DeFore murder, that took place in Georgia. And there have been numerous other axe murders that are very similar to this happening in Texas, Colorado, all around the country. Oh, even Oregon. And that's why somebody in the comments section responded to that one documentary on the subject that, well, it could be one guy who's just traveling the country by train and attacking people at random. And that uh, documentary I was reviewing last time proposed that it was a German immigrant who had come to America around the age of 22 and he kept killing into his 60s. I don't believe that theory, by the way, because I think he would have, if that were true, he would have stopped killing well before age 60. But um, is there actually a Jack the Ripper going on? As I said, it doesn't have to be a media hoax. It could be some type of mafia-related killing. And that will bring us to our next point, talking about the Black Hand. While not all of the victims in the New Orleans Axeman murders were Italian, some of them were, like the Maggios, Pepitone, and, of course, Cordomiglia, there are lots of Italian names that come up who were, from people who were murdered in the Axeman crimes. And to repeat, six people were murdered and six people were injured in the crime spree that took place in 1918 to 1919. 
there's another series of murders that happened in the earlier part of that decade, and maybe even earlier. But when I was listening to Miriam Davis on the Most Notorious podcast, she was talking about the Black Hand. And as I have said before, on Black Box Online Radio, I share my journey with you. I talk about how I learn about these things. I did not know what the Black Hand was. I assumed that it was a sect of the Italian Mafia working in New Orleans, but that is not true. And, um, the Black Hand is... Well, I'll just read something from the Mafia Wiki, because it says, Black Hand, or La Mano Nera in Italian, was a type of extortion racket. It was a method of extortion, not a criminal organization as such, though gangsters and the Mafia practiced it. So, the Black Hand that she was talking about was an extortion process. Well, how exactly would this extortion process have been carried out? Let's read again. The roots of the Black Hand can be traced through Sicily and throughout the rest of the Kingdom of Naples as early as the 1750s. And to put that in some, into some context, that's really not that long from the 1910s, uh, for lack of a better term, like the second decade of the 20th century, because, I mean, if you think about organized crime in America, that definitely goes on for many decades and even centuries. Typical black hand tactics involve sending a letter to a victim, threatening bodily harm, kidnapping, arson, or murder. The letter demanded a specific amount of money to be delivered to a specific place. It was decorated with threatening symbols like a smoking gun or a Hank's man's noose, signed with a hand imprinted in black ink. Hence the name La, Mano, La Mano Nera. I do not speak Italian, excuse me. Mispronunciations, which means the Black Hand, which readily was adopted by the American press as the Black Hand Society. But um, for the purpose of this discussion, we'll just focus on that first um, definition that this is a practice, the Black Hand. People are demanding money. It's extortion, perhaps illegal activities. They're making threats. Now, is it possible at all that these mafiosos, these organized crime syndicates in New Orleans actually followed through with these threats. And that would also explain why many of them, of the victims, were Italian, of even Sicilian descent, but also why several victims were not, or why you would encounter some people like the um, Bessemers, or like, well, Bessemer himself. He was actually with um, Harriet Lowe at the time, I believe, of his attack. Why he was not Italian, but he worked in the grocery industry. I mean, he was a grocer. So, do you see how things could possibly be fitting together? And I know that that's just trying to connect some dots. And that's not something that I would ever dare bring into a court of law and be like, okay, it's a mafia connection. The mafia was demanding money from them. They didn't pay. So, they were attacked with an axe by some guy. And uh, yes, indeed, this does bring about the next theory that people have, that if this is the Mafia, and these are Mafia-related attacks, could it not be the same person every time? Um, as I said, unsolved case. But um, you could get the idea. Some people like, this is a Mafia hitman. You, I've seen that written out in the comments section, where people think that, okay, that's one perpetrator 
who did the crimes in 1918 to 1919. That's why there's such a short time span. That's why so many people are grocers and shopkeepers. And um, I think you can get the idea there. What really happened? I don't know. It's an unsolved case. Gangsters would carry out the threat if the victim did not pay. Ignazio Lupo, a Sicilian gangster in New York's Little Italy, strangled his victims and burned the bodies in East Harlem, near the murder stable. Okay, I mean, that's going to go into a little bit more about the um, Italian mafia in New York City. But for New Orleans, I don't think that that is the most ridiculous theory in the world. Sometimes you go with your gut instinct and you're just like, there's absolutely no chance that that is true. But, I mean, if there is a single perpetrator, then that is not a media hoax. Even if the media is blowing the coverage out of proportion or misrepresenting certain details. But if there is a single perpetrator, well, there is a New Orleans axe man. He just operated for a reason that is different because with the axe man, they've created this image of somebody who is committing these crimes for somewhat of an unknown reason. With Jack the Ripper, it was mostly about the mutilations, I would argue. And we see this very clearly from, uh, the card that was written after the double event, which saw the murder of Liz Stride and Catherine Eddowes, if they were indeed killed by the Ripper, and that shows that he wanted to mutilate his third victim, Liz Stride, but was unable to because she squealed a bit, as the Ripper said, so then he went and found Catherine Eddowes. So it's about the mutilations with the Zodiac Killer. It's definitely more about writing the letters and the taunts and trying to get his ciphers published in the paper. No matter who your suspect is or what your theory is in the Zodiac Killer mystery, the Zodiac did a lot more letter writing than he ever did actually committing crimes like murder. And that that's why there's a fair claim that the Zodiac was a terrorist rather than a um, serial killer even. But... I would like to um, go back to a different time period that Miriam Davis will talk about. She simply recalls this period, the Cleaver. I've said this in a couple episodes about how she believes that the New Orleans Axeman was a single person, and in her theory, he operated as early as 1910 in Louisiana. So we're going back to Saturday, August 13th, 1910, at 3 a.m. in the morning, Harriet Crudy woke from a sound sleep to find the shadowy figure of a man standing over her with a meat cleaver, the apparition holding up the mosquito netting with one hand and waving the bloody cleaver at her with the other, came sharply into focus as he demanded money, or I'll do to you what I just did to your husband. Panicking, Mrs. Crudy looked down and saw her bloodied husband lying across the bed. You've murdered him, she screamed, terrified. She did only the sensible thing. She reached under her pillow for the box containing $8, which was a significant sum in 1910, and handed it over. It clearly wasn't enough to satisfy the man's cleaver. Is this all you got? I want all of it. Yes, she insisted. Just take it. Mrs. Crudy was too frightened to mention the more substantial amount of money under the mattress. Fortunately, the intruder believed her. He turned around and strode out of the bedroom and threw the crudy's combination of grocery, bar, and residence, snatching up their pet mockingbird in its cage as he went and tossed the meat cleaver in the yard. He retrieved the shoes he had taken off 
and climbed over the back fence, leisurely walked a block down Lessup Street until he reached the corner and sat down on a doorstep. There he flipped open the latch and freed the bird. Wow, what a weirdo. Then he deliberately rolled a cigarette, leaned back against the stoop, and smoked it. Afterward, he pulled on his shoes, stood up, and sauntered down Dauphine Street. Okay, a lot of points here. This person is talking to the victims. That's an interesting hallmark of the serial killer. And definitely, definitely, unlike the DeFore murders in 1879, this person wanted money. I mean, does that also seem like it's fitting in with somewhat of the uh, Black Hand Mafioso um, discussions that we just had? That definitely seems like money is involved. And if the person took the money, as well as the birdcage, this is a real robbery. I mean, this murder is done for profit, so this definitely isn't some thrill-based serial killer. And this is the Cleaver, mind you, but um, Miriam Davis does believe these Cleaver murders that occurred in the earlier part of that decade and the Axemen are committed by the same person. The um, She believes that he switched from the Cleaver to the Axe because the Axe was more easily available, and these Cleavers did not belong to the killer. They were stolen from places and then discarded, as we... Uh, just sit here. At the same time, Mrs. Crudy was afraid that her husband was dead or dying, and she was desperately trying to wake him, groaning he tried to rise, only to fall semi-conscious off the bed. One of the Crudy's young sons added to the chaos by waking up and started to cry, and the mother was even more frantic. Mrs. Crudy left her husband on the floor and ran into the street. She pounded on the neighbor's door. Please open up. My husband is hurt. No response. Some slept through the commotion, Others looked to their windows, but all the doors remained shut for an agonizing fifteen minutes. Mrs. Crudy lurched desperately along the dark and deserted street, running from house to house. She finally managed to get Officer Gus Albert, a policeman who lived nearby. Officer Albert, still in his nightclothes, grabbed his revolver and rushed after the assailant. Now long gone. Well, I think you can, um, I think you can get the idea that the person disappeared into the night, and they were not tracked down. But, ah, uh, something is bothering me about that, that they're running this grocery slash bar, and it's also their residence, and the person has demanded money. And we know that there is an extortion practice that seems to be used at the time involving the organized crime syndicates. Is that actually what happened, though? Or was this just a different type of robbery? I'm really uncertain at this point. And the victim in this attack was named August John Crudy. He was a grocer, and he was the 40-year-old son of an Italian immigrant, and his 29-year-old wife was named Harriet, as I said, and they opened their store on the corner of Royal and Lessup Street only a month before. Now, th that would also be a rather opportune time to do some type of extortion practice, the new business on the block. It was located in the Bywater District of New Orleans, a block from the Mississippi River, just over a mile and a half from the French Quarter. Crudy had been in the ice business, but he had worked to save money to open his own grocery, a modest establishment in a modest neighborhood. I, um, I definitely am not ruling out this uh, black hand theory, because do you ever have those moments when you just have to say, it makes sense. I mean, 
The idea that there is this one Axeman who's just roaming all of America and even Germany, that doesn't make sense to me. I think that that is too outrageous. Like, I'm talking about the guy who had the theory that it's the same killer from 1879 to 1922, operating on two continents. I mean, no, if I can be very blunt. That's just, um, being sensational, but... Now, August Crudy would go on to survive this attack, and the, it turned out that the wounds that he had looked really bad to his wife Harriet at the time. However, they were not life-threatening, and then in a couple days he was sitting up like normal. Prior to working in the grocery business, he worked in the ice business, and he said that he had a rival, like an enemy from the ice business, but the guy matched nothing, like, uh, no, he did not match the description, and he also thought that it was completely out of character for that business rival to have committed an attack like that, that is, if he did it himself. But they asked some questions right here in the book. Why attack the sleeping grocer? Had Crudy stirred in his sleep, frightening him? Well, I mean, that definitely could be something, why not? Why take the bird? You know, serial killers are weird people. Murderers are weird people. They, um, sometimes people are really passionate about animals, but they hate, um, humanity. And then you have people like Jeffrey Dahmer who just like dissecting them, but, I mean, I'm not, I'm not super surprised by that. Some people are, um, I think that it's, it's like they channel their, um, connections to empathy into animals rather than humans. It's kind of weird. For what possible reason did he take his time leaving the crime scene? Oh, well, we went through the Golden State Killer mystery very, very clearly. That's um, an aspect of domination. If you've attacked somebody, you want to sit around in their home, and you want to act like you have, uh, you have conquered their castle. And even though I don't believe that the Axeman operated in Germany, in that documentary that talked about the theory that the Axeman was also a serial killer in Germany, I believe that um, one of the families that was murdered was it was committed by a perpetrator who went on to stay in the house for multiple days, cooking meals and so on. So that definitely happens all the time. The most common supposition was that the attacker was plain mad. Yeah, he could be, but the fact that he took the money... Um, it also says in Miriam Davis's book that the attacker may have gone into the um, places where he thought that money would have been held in the bar and the grocery store, didn't find it, so that's why he went upstairs and um, attacked the man. But um, we don't really know. Hearing Crudy's story and interviewing the neighbors, most policemen were inclined to shrug their shoulders and dismiss this as drunk or crazy. Maybe, I mean... I can't rule it out. Not much else made sense. Oh, well, then you have the serial killer theory. Unless they're just absolutely not breaking their silence about some type of mafia extortion. August Crudy's own idea was that some half-witted fellow did it for the money. I mean, yes, the money was stolen. This isn't some type of sexually motivated thrill attack. The description of the attacker and the description of the two strange men seen hanging around on hanging around his grocery on the night of attack gave detectives enough to question a well-known police character. A couple of such characters were brought to Mrs. Crudy for identification. No, she said both times, not the man I saw with the cleaver. Finally, after about two weeks, detectives got lucky. Chief Reynolds had decided quite reasonably that a criminal who had acted as oddly and even irrationally as the Crudy assailant did 
was probably either mentally ill or drug-addled. Well, every every serial killer and murderer is mentally ill to some capacity, and he had instructed his men to be on the lookout for such a person, so when a known burglar who had spent time in a mental hospital came to the attention of detectives, they would leap on him. I, I think that you can... Well, there's some points that we have to talk about. The perpetrator in this one definitely was in it for the money. Yeah, they're going to say, okay, it's some type of deranged guy who may be half-witted, but, um, but he had the awareness to look for money in the bar and in the grocery. Couldn't find it, so he went upstairs. I don't know if that's going to be exactly like the other um, crimes that took place in 1918, 1919. I'm very undecided about that, and I really hate to just kind of leave everything open-ended and be like, I don't have answers to any of the questions. But I think there's a certain sense of fairness in saying that it's highly possible that these are unrelated crimes that are being united by just that, by some botched police investigations and fantasy-filled journalism. And if they are unrelated, they could be different aspects of the Black Hand. Remember, the Black Hand is not a group of people. It is the process. Doesn't that sound like it would fit all of the points that someone opens a new grocery, there's like, okay, there's a new store on the block. They send somebody a letter saying something about you have to pay, give the money at a specific place or a specific time, or we'll attack you. They don't pay, so they get attacked and somebody steals the money. I don't know if that's out of the question, and it all seems to add up in some ways. I'm not endorsing that one way or another, but what do you think happened with the Crudy attack from 1910, which um, Miriam Davis lists as the first crime of the Axeman in her theory? She says that the New Orleans Axeman of 1918 and 19 was also the cleaver who did this crime in 1910. What do you think about that? Please share anything you want in the comments section down below. I would love to read your responses. Anybody can write the show at blackboxonlineradio at aol.com, amazon.com. The Teespring page is all in the description box. And I'll see you on Instagram for the bonus podcast. Until next time.